Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It's Tuesday. It's New Hampshire Primary Day. We'll talk a lot about that as the podcast goes on today. So glad you are with us. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis, and we're brought to you today by NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite.com slash martini. Much more on them in just a moment. And, Jim, we will get to the primary and the uh, the Democratic campaign in a number of different ways here. But we start with other news, and that is that we are in agreement with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And that doesn't happen a lot, so it's important to take note of when those uh, rare occurrences happen. Uh, if you have been following Virginia at all, and you and I obviously have because we live here, the Democrats now control. They've got a fairly short legislative session, so they're cramming every liberal idea they can literally think of down our throats in the uh, limited uh, number of weeks that they have to do so. But one of the things that they did pretty early on was to have Virginia ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, which it did by wide margins in the House and Senate. And according to their math, that makes Virginia the 38th and the last state needed to actually ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. But there's a problem. The Equal Rights Amendment and the chance to get to that 38th vote actually expired in 1982 when Pete Buttigieg was still in diapers because that's the same year he was born. But uh, there's also been some other states that had approved it that rescinded their ratification of it. And so there's going to be a, a large legal debate, but maybe it can be avoided because according to CNN, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the Equal Rights Amendment, suggested Monday night that the deadline to ratify the measure as a constitutional amendment has expired and that the decades-long effort must start anew. Quote, I would like to see a new beginning, Ginsburg told an audience at Georgetown University Law Center. I'd like it to start over. Nodding in response to the question about the dispute, Ginsburg said, quote, There is too much controversy about latecomers, and she added that Virginia's move came, quote, long after the deadline passed. And so if Ginsburg is going down that road, uh, you know, this this long legal battle that everybody's predicting in in response to the Virginia vote, uh, Jim, would suggest that the Supreme Court wouldn't take their side. Now, there's a whole other debate about whether the Equal Rights Amendment is a good idea. It simply says there should be no discrimination based on sex. It's a one-line amendment, but a lot of folks have looked into that and said, oh, that means women are eligible for the draft and all sorts of things that uh, a lot of people think makes sense that there's a gender distinction. So first of all, what do you make of the fact that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is on the side of the people saying, no, you can't revive this amendment that's been dead for almost 40 years? Greg, how long until we start seeing all of the people who have been saying that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is some sort of goddess, superhero, (laughs) oracle, you know, role model? You go to your children's bookstore, there's at least three Art Ruth Bader Ginsburg biographies for girls on in the children's section. That all of a sudden they're gonna say, you know, I think she's getting up there in years. She's getting senile. She doesn't she doesn't know things as well as she used to. All of a sudden now you're going to suddenly say, look, you can't take you know, her word for it. You know, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Um, I find her logic sound. And I, first of all, there's two interesting questions. The first is, you know, is, there, is there no statute? I, I guess there's no statute of limitations on when a constitutional amendment that pa- passes a state I guess it's there. I don't. Most of the time, when we've amended the Constitution. We haven't had. Well, it's in the legislation. The legislation passed in the '70s, and initially, I think there was about a five-year window for the states to do it. And then the Carter administration, with the Democratic Congress, they pushed it to 1982, and of course, uh, they never extended it from there. 
Yeah. The idea that you can just say, well, look, we're just not going to pay attention to that part of the legislation. <laughs> right. I don't I don't think that flies. The second thing is um, this this recognition of that. So once you've ad- adopted a, a, a constitutional amendment, you can't you can never undo it. You can't elect follow, people who say, wait a second, those people were crazy. They didn't know what they were talking about. We're going to rescind that constitutional amendment because I would suggest the constitutional amendments about prohibition indicate we can make mistakes with these. We can do, people can look at this and say, oh, wait, oh, that was a terrible idea. Oh, we did not want to do that. Never mind. And, you know, um, obviously it took a second constitutional amendment to undo the the amendment about prohibition. But uh, if a state looks at it and says, you know, new lawmakers who say, whoa, 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 that was a terrible idea. They should be able to do that. This idea that, you know, all of a sudden constitutional amendments are like, you know, the old ads for Roche Motel. You can check in, but you can't check out. Um, You can pass them, but you cannot rescind them. I think that definitely needs to be clarified. And also, like, if you're the the folks who want the Equal Rights Amendment, are you absolutely certain you wouldn't be able to get it in this current environment? That's a good question. You'd certainly get it through the House. I don't know if you'd get two-thirds, but you'd probably get fairly close. And so one of the – first of all, why wouldn't you? It's very interesting to see how how adamantly they're fighting it because I don't think that's the – because the – well, what are you, against equal rights, you know? Um, the real ramifications are, are, you know, the the extensions and changes to law that have to be made in the aftermath of after, aftermath of, of adopting a, an equal rights amendment. Look, it'll be interesting to see. My guess is, Greg, you and I will talk about this. This will be interesting news in legal circles and the media, which you know, Stephen Colbert, who loves to show her doing push-ups and all that kind of stuff. That's not going to come up the next time she does uh, a late night talk show or or something like that. Everyone's going to kind of avert their eyes from grandma. Grandma gets confused when it comes to topic, when she says things that the left doesn't like to hear. By the way, I also kind of love the idea that like she, by saying this, she might save a long, complicated legal fight down the road. I don't think it'll work, but you know, I do kind of like the idea of somebody saying, Hey, you know, this whole thing that's going to take up a ton of time and energy. Here's how it's going to end. We're going to skip to the end. If you can't (laughs) convince me, you're not going to convince the other liberal justices. This thing's over. Um, we don't get to say this very often, but good for you, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Absolutely. Now she's notorious for other reasons, I guess. Yeah, uh, the now genuinely notorious <laughs> RBG. But I'm sure everyone's listening, even if it doesn't get a lot of immediate attention, uh, Jim, because if there's one thing we've learned over the past few months, it's that the House of Representatives will never go down a worthless uh, legal and investigation <laughs> path and a, and a court fight that could never possibly result in a victory for them. They've got the kind of foresight that you only find in Iowa caucus <laughs> All right. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg knows that 2020 came after 1982, and she also can probably do the math on the nine justices on the Supreme Court and elsewhere. But if you don't know your numbers, you really don't know your business. Most companies, really, most companies don't actually have a clear picture of their business and its numbers, and that's why they struggle to grow or even stay in business sometimes. And that's where NetSuite by Oracle comes in. It is here to solve that problem. So as a business owner, are you really confident that you're making the right business decisions? Serious entrepreneurs and finance teams run on NetSuite, the world's number one cloud business system. NetSuite offers a full picture of your business, everything in one place, finance, inventory, HR, and customers. No more guessing, no more worrying. You can run your business with confidence. You can grow successfully on NetSuite like Ring, Hint, Bowl and Branch, and more than 19,000 other businesses. NetSuite, business grows here. 
How many different times have you at your business or people you know at their business say they just don't understand the system they're using or how the numbers all work together and they feel like they're just playing catch-up? Well, NetSuite by Oracle solves all of that. Schedule your free product tour right now and at the same time receive their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. You can do so at NetSuite.com. N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E, netsuite.com slash martini. Set up your free product tour and get your free guide today. netsuite.com slash martini, netsuite.com slash martini. All right, Jim, we've talked about it a lot, and that's uh, that uh, folks on the right kind of want to see Bernie Sanders end up as the Democratic nominee. Some of them just want a clear clash with this socialism issue. You get the capitalist in Trump versus the socialist in Bernie Sanders. Let's have it out. No mushy middle on this. Let's just slug it out and see who wins. Others believe he's the easiest one to beat because he is an avowed democratic socialist or really an avowed socialist. Anybody who praises Castro and Ortega and so forth and honeymoons in the Soviet Union, uh, probably not exactly on the moderate end of the political scale. But uh, what exactly would happen if Bernie were to win? Because the Daily Beast and others have talked about, be careful what you wish for. It's something that the Democrats got burned on, of course, in 2016. And so over at CNBC, reporter Robert Franks took a look at what Bernie actually wants to do and what it would cost us. Uh, in case you don't remember, these are the numbers. Sanders has not released the total cost of his plans, but a new estimate by Treasury Secretary Larry Summers finds that Sanders' plans would cost over $60 trillion, that's with a T, over the next decade. That's more than the current total projected spending of the government of $52 trillion. Now, Sanders' biggest ticket item, as we just heard, was Medicare for All. That would cost around $30 trillion over the next decade. His Green New Deal adds another $16 trillion. His Jobs for All plan, giving every American who wants one a federal job, that would add another $7.5 trillion. On top of that, you add his plans for canceling all student debt, universal preschool, universal child care, and the total brings you well over $60 trillion. Now, Sanders has about $20 trillion in new taxes planned, most of that on the wealthy, Wall Street and corporations. Unclear, though, how he would raise the other $40 trillion or more. There you go, Jim. $40 trillion unaccounted for. What he wants to add is more than our already bloated budget by quite a bit. So while it's fun to watch the infighting on the other side, just remember what's possibly at stake here. Yeah. Look, my sense of Bernie Sanders, and if you're if you're rooting for Trump's re-election, Bernie Sanders offers you the highest ceiling and lowest floor of outcomes in the 2020 general election. Uh, could Trump beat him like a drum? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's very possible. I, I think if you make the refer- the election a straight-up referendum on the current state of the economy and America, do you want to try socialism? Do you want to throw out everything we have and try it on this guy and his ideas and everything that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wants to enact and all that kind of stuff? I think Trump wins. But I've been wrong before. <laughs> I was wrong in 2016. So... I think you probably want to have at least a little bit of, of caution about this. And I think it's safe to say that if Bernie Sanders, you know, Bernie Sanders could beat Trump. Bernie Sanders is competing for a lot of the same kind of uh, voters as Trump. Uh, I think Trump, you know, he brings his own baggage to the table. I think we saw this in the 2018 midterms. I don't know how suburban voters break in a Trump versus Sanders matchup. I think suburban soccer moms, et cetera probably hold their nose and vote for Trump, but I would not want to bet the presidency on it. 
My colleague Ramesh Panuru wrote a really good column about this for everybody who says, ah, look, Republicans will probably keep the Senate. By the way, that's not the safest bet in the whole wide world. But, you know, if Republicans keep the Senate, they'll be able to block most of what Bernie wants to do and we'll, the country will be OK. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that, or at least we, we, everything that, that uh, we're worried about Bernie Sanders doing. Remember, he'd still be picking the cabinet. You'd still be getting a Bernie Sanders approved, selected secretary of state, secretary of the Treasury, secretary of, you know, the entire cabinet, all kinds of positions up and down uh, uh, the entire executive branch. Could Republicans in the Senate block some of those nominees? I guess. But, you know, eventually you got you to appoint somebody. Um, and I think the other thing, which is probably even more significant, is if Bernie just wins the nomination, then he will have demonstrated you can be an open and outright socialist and you can win the Democratic nomination. This is going to have a big impact on Democratic Party politics for the foreseeable future. Think of the Overton window, which I think Glenn Beck popularized. You know, the Overton window is kind of the range of, of ideas that are considered reasonable, plausible, and realistic in American politics. Well, Bernie Sanders is going to put, you know, getting the nomination, uh, is going to push it very far to the left. If he wins the presidency, even if he doesn't get a chance to enact all the legislation he wants to enact, he's still going to move that Overton window way to the, to the left. It, it basically would probably make socialism, if not mainstream, then let's say quasi-mainstream in American politics, and that would be a really significant change. And as the Overton window shifts, it does tend to move on the other side, too. Um, I think you would start seeing various Republicans start trying to figure out a way to function in a now quasi-socialist country. So that's the downside of Bernie Sanders first winning the nomination and then going on to win the, the uh presidency now look as republicans we don't have that much say in who the democrats nominate this is a fight you know i've said i'm not going to be voting in the virginia primary i know hugh hewitt says he wants to support bernie sanders again you know one be careful what you wish for and two just winning the nomination makes the the i the range of ideas in the democratic party take one step to the left as a man on the right i missed the days of the democratic leadership council and bill clinton supporting welfare reform and the moments where there was a you know conservative elements here and there within the democratic firmament um i think that's uh i, I think that's what a lot of conservatives might be kind of whistling past the graveyard as they start the idea of, hey, wouldn't it be fun if we helped Bernie Sanders win the nomination? $60 trillion. $40 trillion of debt, meaning you almost triple the current obscene $23 trillion in debt. Jim, let's talk about a guy we haven't talked about a lot lately, and that's because, well, he was on the debate stage, but as usual, he didn't do much there, and that's Tom Steyer. Uh, he's a billionaire, too. He's not a Michael Bloomberg billionaire. He's only spending $14 million so far of his own money, not... Two or three hundred million, like Bloomberg is so far. But Tom Steyer is uh, trying to get some attention uh, as uh, voters go to the polls today, and probably more so as uh, voters in Nevada and South Carolina get ready to do their thing in the next couple of weeks because he's doing much better in those states. But Tom Steyer, according to The Hill, just vowed to raise the minimum wage to $22 per hour. If he gets elected, according to Fox, he originally made the statement and the promise during a campaign party in South Carolina on Sunday. The current minimum wage is $7.25. Most people want to make it 15 like Bernie and Warren and Biden. Uh, but now Tom Steyer going 22. So, Jim, why stop there? Why not just go 30 or 50 or 100? I mean, or just give everybody the same amount like Bernie does. I mean, this is this is just not in the, uh, the supply and demand curves that we all learned about in, in school. One of my uh, pieces yesterday was about the, the breakdown in party discipline. You know, may, the national committees 
do not have the ability to say to a candidate, you are hurting the party. It's time for you to drop out. If you want, we'll get you some nice ambassadorship somewhere some next time we have the White House. But they don't have that leverage that they used to. And I think this has a lot of bad effects in our politics. And, you know, we, we on the right can chuckle about this. But you have this proposal. And the other one that jumped out is, you know, the Democratic debate Friday night turns to the topic of race. And you can almost like see the temperature in the room go down a couple of degrees because you have an almost entirely white group of candidates up on stage with the exception of Andrew Yang. You have no more African-Americans. You have no more Latinos. And African-Americans in particular, but also Latinos, are a big part of the base of the Democratic Party. And it's embarrassing to the Democrats that none of their uh, minority candidates other than Yang made it to this stage. It is embarrassing to the Democrats that their final field is like six of seven white people and two of them are billionaires. Steyer's up there and the first thing he says is, I support reparations. And he does it like he's throwing down this gauntlet. I got the guts to do this. That's me throwing a pen to represent the gauntlet. <laughs> Who else is with me? Well, everybody, everybody else, on that, it's not like nobody else on that stage has have forgotten about reparations or they don't know what it is. You know, they're, they're not saying they support reparations or they'll say, well, I believe we should form a commission to study it, you know, because they realize you lose votes that way. Right. This is what, you know, if, if James Carville had hair anymore, he would be tearing it out <laughs> over this. Right. Um, and now you see this idea of, well, we need at least a twenty three dollar minimum. Are you, you know, like say to small businesses. You know, the fight for 15 just got finished right, in most places, right? You know, oh, by the way, what, what got a whole bunch of companies to raise their uh, minimum wage to $15? The tax cut. You're welcome. But now you're like practically saying, we're gonna, you know, oh, that big increase we made, now I want to increase it by another 50%, by another you know, $7. <sighs> you know, absolutely no sense of the reality of, of cash-strapped small businesses, anybody who's trying to start it out of the gate. No idea of how, you know, how this will actually affect employment. Tom Steyer doesn't need to worry about any of this stuff because he knows he's not going to be president. He ran in order to become friends with Bernie Sanders. He just wanted to say <laughs> hi. And so if you were Tom Perez, you'd be like, you know, knocking people over, trying to grab Bernie Sanders, grabbing him by the shoulders and lapel, shaking him, saying, will you please say hello to Tom Steyer so he gets out of the race? <laughs> Somebody do something with this guy. Or alternately, you'd be grabbing, you'd be grabbing him by that Scottish tartan necktie of his and say, <laughs> if you don't get out of this primary and creating problems for all the rest of these candidates, I'm going to crown you because and you are, you're going to do jack squat in this party. Although the interesting thing is, does Tom Steyer have the ability to make that kind of threat? Or has the Democratic Party and its candidates become so dependent on a billionaire like Tom Steyer and all the different you know, causes he funds? Maybe it doesn't have that leverage. But now you're in a situation where, look, what, what, you think Tom Steyer has to spend a lot of time thinking about how he would make that $23 an hour minimum wage work for the whole country? And what effect it would have in different parts of the country with much lower costs of living and higher costs of living and all that kind of stuff? Do you think he spends a lot of time thinking about, huh, if we do reparations, how is this going to work? How do you do people who are African immigrants, but not necessarily African-American descendants of slaves? How do you do it with people who are not descendants, who, who are, are not descendants of slave owners? How do you do it about people who are biracial? How do you, you know, like there are all kinds of giant questions you have to think through about this. And this is why when white politicians who mean well, usually they'll usually say, hey, we'll throw some more grants to historically black colleges and universities which, oh, by the way, are good institutions. We should supporting them. This is their like, okay, I'm not going to do reparations, but I'm going to do this nice thing to help this minority group. And hopefully everyone will you know, be happy after that. 
Tom Steyer is just this little, you know, this like completely oblivious and inadvertent bomb thrower. He's like Mr. Magoo in this in this primary field. And he's making life harder for everybody else. And the Democrats have no ability to stop him. It's absolutely funny and hilarious. If it didn't, it wasn't the possibility this could end up with a very, very, very liberal to the point of socialist Democrat winning the nomination and arguably the president and possibly the presidency. All right, Jim, polls close tonight in New Hampshire, I believe, at 8 o'clock from all the countdown clocks I'm seeing on cable news. So you've got uh, several hours if you live in New Hampshire. Uh, The polls are all over the place here. Pete was surging. Bernie's ahead. Klobuchar is surging. Well, wait, Bloomberg now on the rise, according to the Q poll. In fact, he actually won Dixville Notch, even though he didn't really campaign in New Hampshire. So, uh, Jim, I don't know if they're just trying to... uh, raise the drama here, but uh, we'll see what happens tonight. I think the only thing we pretty much know for sure is that Joe Biden's not going to be too happy at the end of the night. Yeah, yeah. But for those who don't know, Dixville Notch is this town, small town that always used to have its uh, primary. Everybody would show up at the town, you know, town hall or whatever it was and vote right after midnight. So they could officially say they were the first town to report their results and, and all that stuff. I believe, Greg, were they down to like five? Yes, it's pretty low now. It's a small, it was always a small town with always like 23 people as legal residents or something. But yeah, like it's now like it's dying. It's disappearing. Uh, I'm glad that they managed to keep their tradition going. There are two or three other towns that have started doing that and Klobuchar did well. The only thing that has me nervous is two things. One, New Hampshire hates to verify the choice of Iowa. They, they're completely contrarian because if, if, if all they do is say, yeah, Iowa, Iowa, you got it right. Well, then who needs New Hampshire anymore? <laughs> that, that makes Iowa more important. So I think there might be a little contrarianism. 2008, Hillary versus Obama, the polls were completely wrong on that one. So that's this giant asterisk you put there. But look, it looks like Bernie's going to win. It looks like Buttigieg will be uh, a reasonable second. I think what's really interesting is that Biden, Klobuchar, and Warren are all right around that you know that 15% threshold. And anybody who comes out not getting delegates is going to be in really rough shape after, uh, after the way things Iowa turned out. So, you know, as Yogi Berra said, it gets late early out there. Jim, how could New Hampshire possibly validate what Iowa did since we're not really even having a consensus of who won there? Ah, uh, yeah. So <laughs> obviously, I mean, look, we know it's between Bernie and Buttigieg. Yes. So like, you know, and, and technically in terms of who voted the most, got the most votes, it's Sanders. In right. terms of who got the most delegates, it's Buttigieg. Remember, these are the same people who want to get rid of the Electoral College. <laughs> and, um, you know, and the, the Warren did okay. Uh, I think but the, it's a hard lesson from 2016. You may remember that Bernie uh, Marco Rubio got third place in Iowa and it was better than everybody expected. And then he did really badly in New Hampshire of that terrible debate. And then he kept doing okay, a better than expected third place here and a better, you know, except the funny thing is each time you're beating expectations, somebody else is beating you. <laughs> right. You know, you, you get, oh, look, look, that was a really good third place. That's great. Somebody else did first and somebody else did second and they're ahead of you. And that's, where I think Warren has to be very nervous about the uh, coming weeks. Wow. All right. Lots to watch. And then it's on to, uh, on to Nevada and South Carolina. So, Jim, we'll have plenty to talk about tomorrow. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thank you very much for being with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review. Reminder, you can also listen on those uh, home surveillance devices, uh, Google Home and, and Alexa and so forth. And make sure you tune in Wednesday for the Three Martini Lunch. See you then.